it's um, really close, and I'm grateful for that. I think my family's probably more grateful for me to be done with seminary because uh, they typically end up sacrificing the most while I'm at having a lot of fun learning about God. This is wonderful. It's like, yeah, I'm dealing with kids. So. <laughs> Sorry, honey, love you. Um, it is a pleasure to be here with you for various reasons. I love to talk, so that's one good thing. I love to talk primarily about Jesus. So that's a great thing. Uh, but I have a lot of joy in being able to see um, our pastor be a way to study and ask and beg and plead uh, with what the Lord would want to do here. That's a good thing. That is a really good thing. So super excited about that. I don't know how your week has been. I hope it's been well um, for us. And maybe many of you have experienced this this week, but for us, it's kind of new. Uh, my daughter started kindergarten. I know. It's like, oh, man, this is crazy. Some of you have probably experienced that this week, or it's old hat. Some of you have college students. Mm, you're older than me, Roger. But, um, uh, what? what? <laughs> but these transitions, it's like, oh, my little girl is going to kindergarten. And so these things, I know I'm not old, but it makes me feel old. Um, along with ear hair, that makes me feel old, too, because I'm like, where did that come from? Like, all of a sudden, when, when I had to regularly check my ear hair as part of my grooming habits, that really changed everything for me. I'm like, what is going on? Like, God, why do I need hair coming out of my ear? I don't know if you've ever asked that, but, um, yeah. <laughs> First question to Jesus when I get there, ear hair? Seriously. And the toe hair, what's that about? Anyway, um, <laughs> It has been an incredible week, a lot of fun, transitions for our family, um, and maybe for you as well. And so, boy, if pastors were to be honest, preparation time for messages, they always take on a different feel. Uh, sometimes they're deeply convicting. Uh, sometimes they're just really fun. Sometimes they're hard because you don't understand them, and you're supposed to because you're the pastor. Um, and then sometimes they're just really encouraging. And uh, so this morning, I have really enjoyed uh, simply just looking at this text and, and plowing through John again as we've been doing. But John 17 is where we'll be, verses 20 through 26, to wrap up our series that we've been talking about, Christ Our Life. It's been fabulous. It's been a lot of fun. Um, but as you're turning and we're getting ready for that, I'd like to pray and uh, just ask God to be here this morning. Father God, you are great. Uh, you are wonderful. This moment is uh, unique and special indeed for a lot of reasons, and namely because you're here. And in that, Father, we can be encouraged, we can be convicted, Lord, we can be given guidance, and we can, for some of us, for the first time, hear the truth of who you are and respond with trust and repentance. This morning truly is phenomenal when we step back and we long to hear from you. Father, we are children, and we say this a lot, Father. Because we know we don't need a great, wonderful sermon or the perfect song. What we need is to hear from you. Your children in this room need to hear your voice this morning. So would you speak? Would you encourage us? Would you lift us up? Would you motivate us? Would you convict us and push us forward as the church here in Tempe, Arizona? So, Father, I love you. And you know how inadequate I feel in this moment. But I find a lot of joy and comfort and strength in your word. So as we exalt that, may you work in us this morning. This evening we pray. Amen. You know, the ideal of utopia has fascinated many throughout history. 
The ideal of a perfect place or a perfect society has captured the attention of philosophers, movie directors, and writers, and practically anyone who's human, right? What would it be like to be like a perfect place, right? Like paradise. And we think a lot about that. Well, one philosopher, such as Plato, said in his utop utopian work called The Republic, here's what he said, humanity should aspire to the ideals of justice, friendship, and morality. If that's what we should look to. And Aristotle, he kind of argued in the same line. He said humanity's ability to strive towards a higher level of those things, of morality, justice, brotherhood, or friendship, however you want to look at it, is what sets us apart from lesser animals. This is a difference when we look at us as humans. So therefore, this higher achieving of these things that make us human, morality, justice, friendship, is what is going to achieve this utopia, this perfect place, this perfect society. So the notions of contemplation, moral choices, hard work, they've kind of remained the common concepts within this kind of utopian thinking. And these guys were a long time ago. Well, Thomas More, though he came long after these guys, he was the first person to actually use that word utopia which is where we get our English word from, it's not uh, English, as the title of a book, which he was the name of an island that was like the perfect place, the perfect society. And throughout the book, he tells how the utopians, how they function to achieve that perfect place. And interestingly enough, and I don't know, maybe you're just bored out of your mind, but this intrigues me. <laughs> interestingly enough that the word utopia is actually a Greek word which actually means no place. That's kind of funny, isn't it? No place. Maybe it's a way for Thomas More to indicate it's really not possible. But on this island, Utopia, and in Plato's work, the way to achieve this kind of higher level of morality, justice, and brotherhood, a Utopia, perfect society, was lots of rules and regulations. As one person put it about Plato's work, today, it would be considered a nightmarish society in which few would want to live because of the rigid kind of class system and almost the forcing of one person to be better. Movies have as well, right, approached this ideal of utopia. Do you remember that movie, The Village? No, maybe M. Night Shyamalan, didn't that how you say it? Remember that back in the day? Remember like the, the lead up to that movie? You're like, oh, this is going to be crazy. It was all like wild. So the village was, if you haven't seen it, super interesting, uh, about a group of people that are fed up with society and the pain it causes, especially after one of the members experienced, uh, I think his father being murdered, I think is what it was. So on one man's wealth in the group, they set up a society in a remote place, and then they kind of returned to a more primitive time of doing things, gathering, uh, agriculture type things, and they begin raising their children in the dark about reality the outside world. As the movie progresses, things get a little crazy, especially with the amount of lies that are needed to keep their children from the outside world. And it turns out the society is not that great after all. It even experiences the ugliness of murder. After all that planning, it still was not. You know, the Bible in Genesis describes a perfect place. 
the garden, right? But there is a stark contrast. There is a major difference between all these attempts throughout the history of the world to figure out how to create a perfect place, a perfect society. There's a difference between those and Genesis. Humanity was in a perfect relationship with God. That is what made it perfect. You see, sin was not present, but now that sin is present, man has been trying to return to that perfect place, but not able. All attempts to achieve utopia, they have to deal with sin. They have to deal with our fallenness. Well, this morning, in our section of Scripture, in this high priestly prayer, Jesus speaks to a oneness that believers, us in this room who believe on Christ as our Savior, that we can experience and enjoy in the midst of sin and fallenness, in the midst of dystopia. Well, if you'll read along with me, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26 is what we're going to look at this morning. We've been tracking along in chapter 17 of this prayer that's oftentimes called the high priestly prayer, and rightly so, because the priest, Jesus, is mediating and he's calling out to the Lord, calling out to the Father. So read along with me. It'll be up on the screen. I think in the Bible's in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those. 624, if I remember correctly. And if you don't have a Bible at home, take it. I don't mind. Take a couple of them. I don't care. Just take one, all right? So follow along with me. Verse 20, chapter 17 is what we're going to pick up today. I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world, loosely understood, those who don't, do not believe in Jesus, may believe that you have sent me. So verse 22, as if it's not confusing enough, let's get more confusing. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you loved me, or loved them, rather. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Verse 26, he wraps up his prayer with this. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Anyone understand that? <laughs> well, hopefully with our time together, we can unpack this a little bit. But before we kind of jump out to any explanation, did you catch it that Jesus is praying for us? Did you catch that? 
So verse 20, let's reread that. He says, I do not ask for these alone. Well, who are these? All the people in the prayer before that, the disciples himself. I do not pray for these alone, but a very stark contrast, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Well, if you're one of those who believe in him, you're factored in to this prayer. I mean, let that sink in for a moment. Do you hear this? Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus is now, in this section, praying for us, those who will believe. We have, over the last few weeks, we've drawn encouragement, kind of indirectly, right? From what Jesus has been saying to the disciples. But now we can hear these words directly spoken Staggering. See, there's a major shift that Jesus wants to be clear that he cares deeply for us. And not only us, right? But notice the future tense. Those who will. See, it doesn't stop with you in this room. It doesn't stop when we come to be those. It says who will continually come to know me. Those who will believe. We should care. We should continue to care that more will know him. Through what? Their word. What's their word? Words about Jesus. All throughout, beginning in John chapter 13, we have looked at over and over again where Jesus says continually, hear my words, follow my words, speak my words. Through their words about Jesus. Words that have impacted many in this room. And will continue to change hearts until the Lord returns. Those who will. Yes, you are in that number, but there's many more who need and must be in that number. You see, Jesus prays for them. And Jesus prayed for you. Seriously. Jesus prayed for you. I had a dear friend in college. His name was Steve Phipps. Anybody know him? Of course not. He's in Tennessee. But this, this friend was very interesting for, for various reasons. But one particular thing, when you would be in a conversation with him, hey, how's life? How's it going? We're talking about life and kind of knew each other well, so we may kind of share some things going on. And yeah, if you wouldn't mind praying for me. He goes, you know what? I want to pray for you right now. And oftentimes my first thought would be, there's a lot of people around <laughs> we're just in the middle of the hallway here at school, but okay. You know, that's kind of because I'm super spiritual that way. <laughs> so he was like, let me pray for you right now. I'm like, all right, man. And sure enough, he would go for it. And this is a common practice for him. Anytime someone's like, oh, man, I just wish they pray for you. He's like, can I, can I pray for you right now? And one day I asked him, I was like, why do you do that? It's kind of awkward. It's kind of different. He says, you know what? He says, if I tell you that I'm going to pray for you, more than likely, I'm probably not going to. <laughs> he was actually honest, right? How many of us have used that phrase knowing that we're not going to do it? Praying for you. And then it's like three years later, oh, you know what? I never prayed for that person. So he desired to say, I want to pray for you right now. And you know what? To hear someone pray for you is deeply encouraging. Even just this morning, standing right there. My dear friend Nick says, can I pray for you? 
Yeah, you can pray for me. It is deeply encouraging to hear someone pray for you. And if it's that encouraging on a human level, how deeply is, is it encouraging to hear Jesus himself pray for us? You've got to let that sink in a little bit. I don't want to skim over that too easily this morning. That Jesus in this moment was thinking of us in his prayer. Well, what was he praying for? Verses 21 and 23 capture his prayer very clearly. So verse 21, let me read this to you. So it starts with that. It's kind of giving you the purpose, what he's saying. I do not ask for them only, but I also ask for those who will believe by them. What are you asking? That, in order that, the purpose is they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23 is very similar. He says, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Still a work in progress, right? That they would continually be made perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even, even as you love me. So you remember a few weeks ago when I had those uh, uh, file folders, you know, and we kind of talked about this indwelling spirit. We have the first one and then Jesus is in and God is in, the Spirit's in, we're in. Jesus is like all this beautiful indwelling. And Jesus is, is praying for a oneness like the Father and Son that ultimately leads to belief in Jesus. So Jesus' prayer for us in this moment right now is for oneness. A oneness that is on par with the relationship between the Father and Son. That is staggering that there is an intimacy available to the church, to us, among us. What? You mean that you're asking for a oneness that is on par with how the Trinity functions? That is staggering to me. That that is available to us, the church, to us, among us. Sure, there's distinction but a oneness in Jesus as our Savior and his truth as our God. Much like a book, right? There's many pages, lots of pages, with all kind of different words, but one focus. They're so intermingled, it's hard to see one page without seeing the other. See, there's distinction, but there's a oneness within this room. In Jesus as Savior and his truth as our God. Remember verse 20? Those who will believe through their word, truth about Jesus. You see, this is where we find our oneness. And here is what is most interesting about this oneness. It can lead to belief. You see, there's a deep connection between our unity and Jesus' glory being revealed, seen, and known. That's interesting. See, the purpose of his prayer is for oneness, and he goes one step further so that the world might believe. Well, how is this oneness accomplished? Because I don't want us to be mistaken of how we get there. 
Well, verse 22 is kind of tucked in between 21 and 23. That's why it's verse 22. Yeah, see what I did there? And it kind of plays a good transition. It's, here's what I want. Here's how it's accomplished. Let me reiterate again. Here's what I want, right? Here's what I want. Here's how it's going to happen. Here's what I want. What does verse 22 say? It gives us a means by which oneness will be accomplished. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Here we have this word glory again, and that word glory is kind of like a slippery fish. The moment you grab a hold of it, and I've got it now, it like slips out of your hand. And you read a verse like this going, huh? The glory that you have given me, I now give to them. With what? The purpose that they may be one. So there's something about this exchange, this giving of glory that's going to bring about our oneness. What a crazy thought. So the means by which you and I are going to be one is through Jesus giving us his glory, his splendor, all that he is. So let's do a little bit of review. A few weeks ago, Pastor Chuck, he described for us that glory often means to be clothed in splendor. It's a thing that someone has, and they're clothed in splendor, in majesty, in greatness. It's something that they have. Glory is often the word that describes all that God and Jesus are. An all-encompassing word to kind of capture his greatness. So this means that our oneness, our unity is only accomplished in and by Jesus. See, that needs to be clear this morning. Let me just say that again. This means I'm, all the glory you've given me, I'm going to give to them. All that I am, this word glory is encapsulating everything that he is. All the words he's given, the sacrifice he's about to lay out for us. I'm giving that to them so that unity can be accomplished, so that they can be one just like the Father and Son are one. You see, this is a major contrast to our earlier observations of utopia, right? Our oneness is not achieved by a political agenda nor a denomination. It's not achieved by the right philosophical ideals. It's certainly not achieved by disengaging the world and creating our own society. As Jesus prayed the, those exact words a few verses before, he says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. It is not achieved by a higher level of goodness. You really can't be good enough to create oneness. It's not by rallying around the hot issue of the day. Certainly not accomplished through our commonality. Race, gender, wealth, whether you're tall, short, skinny, athletic, intelligent, any of the more sought-after qualities of a country club, it doesn't create Oneness, because hear this, it is precisely our uncommonness that makes our oneness so potent to the world. 
you catch that? It is precisely our uncommonness that makes our oneness so potent to the world. It's precisely those differences, those uncommonality, if that's a word, if not, I'm creating it now. Precisely our uncommonness that makes our oneness so potent, so influential in the world. So we look to him, right? Because the only way that can be accomplished is him for our oneness. And when it's achieved, the world will take notice because it's weird. It's different than anything they've experienced. There's something about it that screams difference. Our oneness is our togetherness around belief in Jesus. Our dependence on Jesus for life itself, for salvation. It's our shared self-sacrificing for the mission of Jesus. You see, our oneness is actually living out his words. That we learned a few weeks ago, that the helper, God the Spirit, is going to remind us of daily. How deeply encouraging, right? Because we've seen this text of Scripture, everything we looked at as an effort for Jesus to encourage the disciples in what? His impending leaving. Hey guys, it's been a great ride, but I'm going away. So we've seen this encouragement, and imagine this. It's like, there is a oneness that I long for, just like me and the Father have amongst them. That's, that's encouraging. We long for it, right? Society has looked for it, tried to create it, and Jesus is saying, I'm giving it to you. So deeply encouraging. And, and the Spirit, God, the Spirit is going to remind us of God's truth, of what Jesus said. And certainly our oneness is our genuine love for one another. And notice I said genuine. Genuine love for one another. Well, theologically, this means we have the ability to reflect Jesus' glory, splendor, all that he is to the world, most clearly in our oneness. We have the ability to reflect Jesus' glory, a, a really crazy, big, slippery, massively huge word, glory, his splendor, all that he is to the world, most clearly in what? In our oneness. Because our uncommonness doesn't get in the way, but yet oneness is accomplished. What's at stake in our oneness is Tempe, Arizona, not seeing Jesus clearly. That's not good. That should cause us to step back for a moment and take concern and evaluate because what is at stake in our oneness, our unity, is that Tempe will not see Jesus as clear as they could. And if we're the church, isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we desire? Is that we would point people towards Jesus because he's the means by which we are one. Because sin is dealt with. Our fallenness is dealt with. 
It's in him. There's hope. Not in your degrees. Not in intellectual advancement. Not in athletic abilities. Or as many relationships that you have. But solely in Jesus. And it works. And it works. When we are one, we have a remarkable appearance. When we are one, we have a remarkable appearance because it is a work of God through Jesus on display and can only be accomplished through his work. That's why people take notice of oneness and uncommonality because from up here, you all look kind of weird. I would never group these people together, right? Of course we wouldn't. But there's something so powerful in that. that that's a work of God. Long-lasting oneness is a work of God. You know, it's, it's staggering because I had the opportunity when I lived back in Florida to be a chaplain of a high school football team. And it's amazing how much oneness they accomplished in that. It was, it was staggering to me. All walks of life looked different. Some were smart and, you know, athletics. Some weren't very smart. I play sports, okay? I'm one of those, all right? It, it is crazy that this particular school has such unity, such oneness. And, and as I begin to get involved with that, you know what I realized? <laughs> the head coach was a believer. And he took every moment to share who Christ was. Whether they understood it or not, their oneness was around the possibility of a Savior who loved them. If some even didn't fully believe it, there was something about it that they longed for. So personally, this means we have to ask the question, is the unity I, we, are experiencing here a display of God's glory, that big word. Is it really? Could we take a healthy look at that for a moment? And could we really be willing to hear a yes or no on that from the Lord? Is the unity, the oneness that we're experiencing here, a display of God's glory? If not, are we fighting for it? Are we committed to oneness? Are we humble? Has the gospel taken full root in our heart? Are we seeking our oneness in Jesus? Because he is the ultimate grounds by which we put our focus to ever accomplish oneness. Because I think sometimes the greatest answer, if not, I do not experience that, is oftentimes the focus by which we think we're going to accomplish oneness isn't Jesus. And because we deviated, there's not a oneness, right? It's the great guard against getting away from oneness. It's Jesus. So as clearly as I can put it this morning, oneness with one another is the greatest display of Jesus' glory. As simple as I can put it this morning. Oneness with one another is the greatest display of Jesus' glory. To think that we can be involved with revealing God's greatness to the world around us is humbling. 
a little bit kind of like, what, really? <laughs> but there's something about this oneness that Jesus is praying for that has influence. Because you realize that he, there's an assumption, and his assumptions are always right. He says for those who will believe. They're going to believe. There's going to be some that are going to see this and believe. Well, what now? I mean, just to shift, because I don't think it's too far of a stretch to understand that there's something about oneness that we should experience here that would deeply encourage us and show the world that something's different, right? But it just get crazy practical. What does this mean for us? If, If what Jesus is saying is true, and it is, just in case there was doubt, if what he is saying is true, what does this mean for us? Because I think conceptually, yes, we want that. Yes, thank you, Jesus, for providing that. Because we all need and want that, right? But I wonder if we're willing to actually do it, you know? I wonder if we're actually committed to to see it happen. So what does this look like? Just a few things for you to kind of chew on a little bit here as we wrap up. If what Jesus is saying is true, it is, what does this mean for us, particularly in conflict? Well, James 4.11 says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That might be a good God, huh, in conflict, that would preserve and protect our oneness. James also says in 5.9, do not grumble against one another, brothers. Might be yet another good God. I don't know that we could stomach James today if he were here (laughs) and he was leading us. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Here's the key, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What? So in conflict, how might we pursue oneness? Well, there's a great start. (laughs) Be kind to one another. Forgiving one another. Do Do you see kind of the gauge? Well, how often? As God in Christ forgave you, (laughs) that's pretty staggering because you're pretty terrible. And there's a lot within you that probably you should not be forgiven of, but Jesus has, right? What about just Monday, Monday through Saturday? Well, 1 John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, has uh, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Sin's been dealt with, so fellowship is possible. You guys catch that connection? Sin has been dealt with. Our fallenness has been dealt with in the work of Jesus. So therefore, fellowship is possible. So our Monday, Monday through Saturday, you pursue relationships. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. You see this reoccurring theme, one another, one another, one another? You want to know how this plays out? Just look at all the statements of one another, which by the end, you're going to have a way to do that. James 5.16, James has a lot to tell us. Therefore, check this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Don't just say, you're, I'm praying for you, brother. 
might be a healthy practice to be like my friend and like Nick did with me this morning. Let's pray right now. I started to kind of take that practice on, and it was all like really weird. I'm like, you know, public place, I'm with my friend. I'm perfect. You <laughs> say it too loud. Let's keep our eyes open. <laughs> yeah, it feels a little awkward, but because of the work of Jesus, but because of oneness, we can feel a freedom to pray for one another. No matter what's around us. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Confess our sins to one another. It looks like GCs are pretty grounded in the scriptures, doesn't it? Yep. What about our neighbors who are investigating, our friends who have questions about God? Therefore, having put away falsehood, be honest, right? There's a sense of honesty about who we are. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You see, his words are effective because verse 20 says, those who will believe in me through their word, which is in turn Jesus' words. So there might be a sense that we'll put away falsehood and each one of us will speak truth to our neighbors. Back in John 13, verse 14, you have this crazy act of Jesus. It says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And I can already hear what you're thinking. Well, this is the disciples. Why are you bringing this scripture up? Because it's for them. (laughs) Who is among those people that Jesus washes their feet? Yeah, I mean, there's something there, right? There's something there that he still willingly washes his feet. What about apathy, huh? Our close friends who once were incredibly passionate about Christ and his work. Hebrews 10.24 has something to say about that. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Right? Let us consider not how to make your friend feel stupid, Let us consider how to stir them up to love and good works. Maybe throughout all of these, in particular with conflict, we could rephrase it. Do not rant on Facebook or any mode of social media. That might be good for us. James might say it that way to us today. Let us consider. I mean, have you you stepped back? For your friend who might be apathetic toward the things of the Lord for some reason, and you not just sit back and consider. That's a thoughtful thinking. It's not just for a couple seconds, but it's thoughtful thinking of how I could consider my brother or sister towards love. What about our differences? Because we're different. Sometimes, maybe we should take a picture here and just put it up and say, see the differences? Just simply within our gender, races, and well, all those types of things, right? How do we look at that? Galatians 5.26 says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another. Here's a good one, envying one another. Just have what they have. Everything will be okay. We become envious and there's seeds of bitterness that rise up in us to where your differences now become a hindrance. And you begin to hate that person because they have something you think you need. Well, that's a great guard for our body. That we should celebrate the differences. 
Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself. <laughs> that scripture has bothered me the first day I read it, and even today. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. You see, I committed that one to memory because I needed that one. When I was in college, I decided that I'm going to pray diligently that I would begin to see others as God sees them. I prayed that very, uh, really, really consistently for months. Boy, did my perspective change. All of a sudden, it wasn't just another person. It was an individual created in the image of God, and I, I cared for them. It radically altered my opinion, my initial reactions. It gave me a great guard to not be so judgmental. And I would say this verse over and over and over, others more significant. So staggering. Well, the second what now? It ultimately comes down to how we view each other, which influences how we treat one another. There are a tremendous amount of scriptures that speak to protecting and preserving our oneness. We looked at a couple. There are roughly 50 plus verses with the words one another in them, which the scriptures often use to kind of talk about us collectively from our view of one another and how to treat one another. So here's your homework for this week. If you care about oneness, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or anything. Oh, yeah, there it is. That's good. So on the blog this week, which comes out Tuesday, I think, right, there's going to be a list of 50-plus scriptures that have the term one another, all dealing with our view of each other and how we should treat one another. We actually, and the staff is actually so serious about oneness because Jesus prayed for it, he desired it, he asked for it, it is available to us, and we need it to change the world around us, that we take it serious, and we want to put these scriptures in front of you for you to read. Asking the Lord would do a little bit of this this week. <laughs> to awaken us to our view of each other, and how we might treat one another. That blog will come out on Tuesday. You can go to the church website, I think, and find the blog there, the link. This was created a couple years ago. thought it was pretty cool. Uh, that'll help you signify which blog particularly is uh, all these lists of scriptures. I'm, I'm going to encourage you. I've read them all this week. Oh, man. That was a healthy work for me. So in conclusion, verse 26, kind of a summary statement of Jesus' life. Here's what he says. He ends his prayer. Everything we've looked at in 17, it ends with this. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus made known the Father's name. In essence, he glorified. Now we're getting an action. Glory is turning from a thing to an action. So if we glorify something, we bring attention to its splendor, right? We bring attention to its greatness. We point towards it. Jesus glorified the Father with his life, and he will continue 
so that the world can know the Father's love. We, too, continue that through our oneness. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so grateful for you and so incredibly encouraged that this oneness is available to us through the church, through the work of Jesus on the cross. It is significant, and it speaks volumes of who you are. So when there's disunity, it also says something about you, and it's not a clear picture of who you are. So, Father, may you humble us this week as we read these scriptures and instruct us on how to look and view and treat one another. I pray that you would do a significant work in our hearts this week that we might be different. So, Father, it is in your holy and precious name we pray.